my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. This week, the Old Pals Act will be looking at the £3 billion in Covid-related contracts awarded to Tory party donors or companies with links to the Conservatives. Plus calls for a public inquiry by parents grieving for their children after continued failures by a mental health service. We phoned up numerous times to say how concerned we were about her and that if we didn't get something put in place, there would be a funeral. And seven months later, there was a funeral. And the BAME game. Former Chief Prosecutor Nazir Afsal weighs in on calls to scrap the acronym for Black and Minority Ethnic. Do you know, I was never in the room when they came up with that term in the first place. I mean, this government currently seems to be obsessed with symbols and labels. You know, we've had the discussions about flags and statues rather than discussing what it means to be British. We're now having a discussion around a label for people from minorities rather than the institutional racism and structural racism they face. So it's a bit of a dead cat. It's a bit of a distraction. People from minorities were never asked whether they were BAME or not. You know, we were told, you are BAME. All that to come. First, a reminder that the Byline Times website, the monthly Byline Times newspaper, Byline TV and this podcast rely on people like you. We are funded entirely by ordinary subscribers. That means we can serve their interests, your interests, not those of government or corporate fat cats. Subscriptions start at just £29. More details at bylinetimes.com. If you want to know what you get for your money, well, how about journalism like this? Revelations over the last few days by Byline Times investigative reporter Sam Bright that government contracts worth £3 billion have been handed to companies with strong links to the Conservative Party. A billion pounds of it to Tory party donors. There's no suggestion that the people involved have done anything wrong, but many have taken advantage of emergency procurement rules introduced at the start of the pandemic. This allows contracts to be awarded without competition. There was also a VIP fast track for firms recommended by ministers, MPs and civil servants. I'll put it to Sam that the amount of cash diverted to firms with ties to the Tories seems to be ever-growing. Yeah, so it seems to go up on a weekly basis, to be honest with you, Adrian. So back in February, we reported that just shy of £900 million had been awarded in COVID-related contracts to donors of the Conservative Party. That shot up in the succeeding month to roughly £950 million. I mean, this is, this is huge. This is a huge amount of money. And proportionally, it's massive as well. So the combined figure for contracts awarded to associates and to donors during the pandemic is equivalent to roughly 11% of the total spending, the total government spending during this crisis. Um, so that's a whopping figure that has been shelled out to you know people who've directed their cash to the Conservative Party because they support the cause and also people who've been associated with the Vote Leave campaign, for example, various different consultancies that have done work for the Conservative Party that are close to Dominic Cummins that have ties to 
the health secretary. And I think it's important to say that, you know, there's no direct evidence that we've seen of shady messages being passed forth between these companies and uh, ministers and officials. It's just sort of a build-up and amassing of evidence that there is clearly a trend here of contracts having gone to these firms. And of course, we know that the government didn't use proper procurement procedures at the outset of the pandemic. So they could essentially pick whoever they wanted to do this public sector work. And so there's a clear public interest in, well, did they or did they not award to their mates and their associates, um, whether coincidentally or not, really? Yeah, I suppose the government's argument would be that because it was a particular time, uh, a moment in the pandemic, they had to remove the normal procurement protocols. That's what they've said, isn't it? That you couldn't expect the normal checks and balances to be in place when healthcare workers were demanding PPE. Do they have a point? Yes, I mean, I think they do have a point in that we had to procure equipment very quickly we had to procure it in a rush but there's also a case to say that the level of spending during the pandemic the sheer amount of money that we've spent I mean Rishi Sunak said in his budget that the only time we've spent more as a nation is during the two world wars and as a result there needs to be even if you need to procure equipment quickly which we all recognize there needs to be something in place for us to hold the government accountable for that spending. And there needs to be extra transparency measures, perhaps after the event, for us to unpick exactly where this money went and to question who benefited from it. And many people have been calling for some sort of taxation of these firms that have been awarded massive amounts of public money. You know, there's been stories of their owners going off and buying piles in the country, you know, multi-million pound mansions. And there's a question as to whether this was actually fair for these companies to gain so much while the rest of the country was suffering. Yes, you've described a VIP fast track system in which individuals or companies who were approved by ministers could effectively bypass the traditional procurement process. You found that a third of the contracts were awarded without any tender at all, and that in 77% of cases, details of contracts, like what they actually involved and who was carrying out the work, weren't published within the legal 30-day time limit. Now, even if you accept the government's argument that there had to be a change in procurement rules because this was, after all, a national emergency, then surely there's an onus on them to ensure that at least there is full transparency about who was getting the contracts and what exactly they were for. Well, exactly. And the government's actually on the on the VIP fast lane. The government has entirely refused to publish the list of companies that were channeled through the fast lane. So we have no idea which firms were and were not referred to by MPs, ministers, officials, etc. Because they claim that it's a matter of commercial sensitivity. Well, <laughs> the fact is that it's the public money, it's the public purse here. And as, as the Chancellor has explained, we'll have to pay this back over years, over generations. And it's only fair as a result for people to know whether it was spent wisely and to whom the money was, uh, was directed. 
You wrote another byline time story which attracted headlines in the Daily Mail, no less, albeit that they were very keen to have a pop at the byline times. This was the curious expenses filed by the Home Office for 2020. There were suggestions that thousands had been spent doing up Pretty Patel's eyebrows. It should be made clear that this was not an allegation that was ever made in the article that you wrote. I mean, it's a fascinating case of how information takes on a new life on social media. And so, yes, we published a story last week that was running through some peculiar, I think is how we described it in the article, strange, peculiar, but nothing more than that, expenses from the Home Office. One of the firms that got work from the Home Office was a company that typically specialises in eyebrows and eyelash treatments. As the article made clear, they'd been awarded contracts to supply PPE. And as you know, Adrian, because we've been chatting about this for months, Byline Times has reported extensively on peculiar firms, strange firms that had won PPE contracts during the pandemic. But the piece was selectively screenshotted to make it seem as though Pretty Patel had spent £80,000 doing up her eyebrows. And, um, and the Daily Mail and Guido Fox, etc. didn't didn't think it was worth their while to read the original piece that we'd published before trying to have a go at us on their websites. So actually, they were the ones spreading fake news and not us. But it just shows that it's a bit of a wild west online and things can absolutely spiral out of control. Sam Bright from Byline Times and a hat tip as well to the Citizens website who collaborated on that story. You can read more from Sam and support his brilliant journalism by subscribing to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Get more details through our website, bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. Now the next item comes with a warning that it might upset some listeners. The pain of losing a child is immense and immeasurable in any circumstance. But imagine having to deal with the knowledge that your son or daughter might still be alive if they hadn't been let down by the mental health service that was supposed to be helping them. That's Melanie Leahy's plight as she campaigns for a public or statutory inquiry into the death of her son Matthew, who was found hanged at the Linden Centre in Chelmsford in 2012, a week after being sectioned. She's among 70 families who say they have lost a loved one or been personally failed by the NHS Trust running mental health services in Essex. Melanie has already forced a debate in Parliament by gathering more than 100,000 signatures to a petition and she's now threatening to boycott a non-statutory so-called independent inquiry set up by Health Secretary Nadine Dorries. This won't have the power to compel witnesses to appear and will only examine inpatient deaths at the Trust, not deaths in the community, so it would exclude, for example, 21-year-old Tilly Ann King, who died from an overdose at home in March 2020 whilst under the Trust supervision. We'll hear from Tilly's mum, Lisa Bates, but first Melanie on her son Matthew. Ooh, well, Matthew, first eight years of his life, we were living on a boat in a marina, loved the water, could swim before he could walk, that boy. He went to a Montessori school, early days, then went on to a little private junior school where he excelled. He passed his 11 plus and then got accepted to grammar school. Went through grammar school. At 14, he went part-time at the senior college and grammar school because his computer studies were 
very good. So, he, yeah, above his age, really, in that respect. During his early teen years, he worked his father's restaurant and then he got a job working in the local park. Just He was a good boy. He started getting poorly around about 17 and he used to say to me he had pains in his stomach and at that time he'd started smoking cannabis and he said that took away the pains that he was experiencing in his stomach and that helped him, you know, literally he said the minute I had a smoke, he said, mum, it just took all the pain away. Anyway, obviously there was issues with his mental health. He went under the care of the early intervention psychosis team and they labelled him psychosis due to cannabis use. We, as a family, accepted that. Yeah, our boy was smoking cannabis and that was what's causing the problem. Different story since he's died. The medical records come to light and you can see that there was actually a physical problem and the doctors were actually, they say, looking to, to investigate that. But they'd had two years to investigate it and done be all. Anyway, Matthew was sectioned when he was 19 and he spent an admission in 2011 in hospital he appears to be doing okay. He comes home. Oh, I've never seen my son like it. He couldn't cross the road safely. He was shuffling. He was dribbling. He had he had horrendous pains in his back. He still had the stomach cramps. He had terrible, terrible nightmares. His vision was impaired. So it's straight to the doctors. But anyway, Matthew, not a silly boy. He said, you know, they've upped my medication by 25%. He'd been on 25 milligrams of spiridone as a depot injection. It'd been up to 37.5, hadn't been discussed. It was obviously an error. The GP saw him, immediately took him off the drug and said, no, we need to get you off it. So, of course, this was in November 11. By May, he's poorly again. We then went through the procedure, like Tilly's mum, struggling to get help. Five mental health assessments that tell being told, can you call us before five because we can't access records, there's no beds, blah, blah, blah. Finally, November the 7th, 2012, an admission and a bed is available. So our son was sectioned. Seven days later, our son was dead. So what happened, as far as you know, in those seven days? Well, my opinion of what happened is Matthew was drugged up, shut up and, and stuck in a room. He, he called home day three of admission saying he's being drugged and raped. We called the ward. They said, no, he's in art class. Come see him at the end of the week when there was a review. Um, I didn't get to speak to my son. The phone had obviously been taken from him and the ward weren't prepared to put me through. The day that I'm due to go visit, I'm nearly ready to go and leave home. And I get a call from the doctor, quarter past one, to say, it doesn't look good. Matthew's being found hanging. Um, well, I just fell on the floor. Um, I, I couldn't breathe. My partner took the rest of the call. Matthew had been dead an hour at that stage. And it all just, you know, it, I'm now nine years nearly down the line trying to find answers. There's so many questions. I've had corporate manslaughter investigations opened and then closed. I did fight with the health and safety executive. They finally listened after three years. And that case is going to Crown Court. They've pleaded guilty. Ligature points that should have been removed, or advised to be removed way back in 2004 after another patient died. These were places on the ward where someone might hang themselves, where mm -hmm. they'd been advised to remove these obvious ligature points. They hadn't done so, and Matthew tragically used one of those points to take his own life. Well, no, there's no proof he took his own life. We've been through the inquest proceeding. It's very contentious as to how he actually did die. The ligature has been blue, 
it's been green, it's been white, it's been a bed sheet, a pillowcase, a blanket. And at the end of the day, when you want to see it, the police destroyed it. So they say in error, there was no photographs of it. So the evidence is gone. The, the mark that he has on his neck isn't conducive to having hung by the way that they, they say. So it's all contestable. He was found with needle wounds in his groin to date, four, possibly five. We don't know where they come from. He had GHB, which is a state rape drug, in both his urine and his blood. The police were called the day that he called rape. They tell me that Matthew was slurred in speech. He had no mental capacity to be examined, although he'd asked to be examined. It took me seven and a half years to get the 999 recording. My son was totally coherent. There was no slurring of speech. But the paperwork now shows that um, as soon as that call had been made, the staff rapidly tranquilised him. They've done no mental capacity, no care plan. Uh, it's just it's just an absolute mess. So here we are. I got the case to Parliament, done a curtailed petition, which means it was, it was ended within four and a half months because um, Parliament was closing. But overnight, we managed to get 105,000 people on there, enough for a debate. The debate was an absolute pantomime. It was no debate. Nadine Doris has already made her decision. She was going to announce an independent inquiry into the Linden Centre, which would cover a number of deaths. I've spoken to previous families that have had independent inquiries, and it's just like another paper shuffle review. It has no power to compel witnesses, no power to ask for evidence from the police and see their paperwork. And to date, we've not seen any papers. So hence, we're here now with Lisa, because um, I was told that they don't do public inquiries into one death. So I've been out, I've found other families. We're now up to 70 families, of which Lisa is one of those, who are also calling for a public inquiry. Lisa, tell us a little bit about your story and Tilly's story. Well, you only have to look back on the last year to see how her friends feel about her still a year on. She was a, a beautiful soul, absolutely amazing. She was fantastic at art, a really good sense of humour. She didn't handle the transition from primary school into secondary school very well. It was big. It wasn't comfy and cosy like primary school. Well, I actually worked in the primary school, so I was there as well. When she went up to the secondary school, she got bullied. Since we've been through all of this, you know, I've learned that Tilly was such a sensitive soul that she couldn't take the bullying. So I went to the school. The school more or less told Tilly to grow a pair and just to get on with it, basically. So I removed her from that school and put her into another school but because she'd been so affected she started to become a school refuser during that time she was offered some counseling and in that counseling she divulged to the counselor that she'd actually started to self-harm the counselor had to come around and tell me about it so when I first found out about Tilly's beginning of her journey she had two scars two cuts on her arms but when she actually passed away she was covered absolutely covered while she was under the age of 18, I had a bit of a voice and I could try my hardest to keep her safe. They did take notice of me. There were times when there weren't any beds in Essex. So she got sent three hours away to a, a hospital that I was told by the psychiatrist looking after her there was actually no good for Tilly and it would be causing her more problems than um, doing her any good. And there was another time at A&E when I had to refuse to take her home because I couldn't keep her safe. 
as a mother, it was it was so shocking because you question your own, you know, as a mum, what have I done wrong? But you know, I've since learned that Tilly was very poorly. She had a challenging illness with nine different labels throughout the course of her journey. Three of them stayed with her the whole length of the journey. And that was the bulimia, the anorexia and the self-harm. They were her enemies, if you like, for eight years. Other things came along, but those, those ones would not leave her alone. And obviously, by the time she got to the age of 18, for some reason, she'd grown up, apparently. The law says that she can look after herself now, even though she's had a mental health issue since the age of 13. So my voice wasn't taken any notice of. Her father's voice wasn't taken any notice of. We phoned up numerous times to say how concerned we were about her and that if we didn't get something put in place, there would be a funeral. And seven months later, there was a funeral. I've just found some paperwork. And this is what the, the care coordinator, that visited my home a week before Tilly passed away. It says, Miss Kay wasn't dressed. She appeared to be slurring, was hysterical, admitted to not taking her medication, admitted to not eating properly, not slept for three days, and appeared to be drinking. But she left my daughter for four days before she contacted her again. Now, if they're not red flags to a medically trained person, What do we have to do to make people listen? Her care coordinator sat in my front room and told my daughter she didn't know what to do with her. And then my daughter got accused of not engaging. How would you sum up the care, Melanie, that that Matthew received from the Mental Health Trust? There was no care, was there? He was just stuck in a room. There weren't records available. And those that were just said, oh, I said hello to Matthew in passing. There was no therapy. The system will not get any better unless there is accountability. When you've got senior managers that have been told to remove ligature points, they write to tell me, yes, all the recommendations made after Matthew's death have been put in place. I get a letter from Pretty Patel, my MP. I get it from the CQC. I get it from the Trust, all saying the same thing. And then another lad dies in February 15, another one in the May. Then they go in and inspect and nothing had been done. And the, mar- the the CEO just says, and the board, go, we don't know why they weren't done. Well, hold on. It can't be right, can it? So unless we've got accountability for people's inaction, we're not going to get any change in this system at all. The system is, is broken, and it needs building right up from the bottom. Can I say, Tilly was admitted into intensive care and was put on life support for three days. We didn't know how she was going to wake up or whether she was going to wake up or or anything. Well, she woke up on the Sunday night. By the Tuesday, she had been assessed by the mental health team and deemed fit enough to come back home to me with a week's worth of medication. Three weeks later, the same thing happened. And then she was deemed well enough to come home. Now, that is someone crying out for help. Melanie, there has been an independent inquiry announced. You're not happy with that. You want a full public inquiry. 
What's yes. the difference and why does it matter? The only way we're going to get to the truth is to compel witnesses to come in and speak under oath. And we need to have the, you know, the paperwork. We've not seen any documents whatsoever. You know, when I do freedom of information requests, like for safeguarding reports and that, unfortunately, they've already been shredded because of the time. We only have to keep paperwork for three years. We kept it for six, you know, but we must get people in under oath. She's offered an independent inquiry into the Linden Centre, which is now expanded out to inpatient deaths across the across the trust. It doesn't cover Tilly's death. It doesn't cover an awful lot of the family's issues. And I think, you know, although this is a journey for Matthew, it's everyone needs to be covered to get to why this and that has happened. We must get the evidence. Um, it's a great public concern now. And it's the only way to move forward. And the key thing here is that the independent inquiry cannot compel witnesses to come forward in the way that a public inquiry no, could. No, well, we must bring the truth to light. Why all these deaths? I mean, there's been, I don't know, untold deaths over the last 20 years and why they've been allowed to happen. I mean, it was the Parliamentary Health Ombudsman when he said he went to the trust and said, um, could you give me the, the, the numbers for how many have died? And the trust says, sorry, we don't know. Well, how is there good governance if they don't have a clue how many of their patients have died on their watch? How are they doing any learning from those deaths? It's wrong. Melanie Leahy and Lisa Bates. Now, the Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust, which runs mental health services in the area, wouldn't comment. They have pleaded guilty to a charge brought under the Health and Safety at Work Act against the former North Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust and are awaiting sentencing on that count. The Department for Health and Social Care said every death in a mental health facility is a tragedy, which is why we are launching an independent inquiry into the deaths of patients at the Linden Centre between 2008 and 2015. It is vitally important we learn from these events in order to further improve care across the NHS and better protect patients in future. That's what they say. I say that's not good enough. Nadine Dorries has the power to order a public inquiry and if she wants to win the confidence of bereaved families, she should do so. Pronto. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this is the Byline Times podcast. Now, it's difficult to keep Nazir Afsal out of the news, the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, who helped bring child abusers to justice in Rochdale, has become a regular guest on TV and radio. Whether talking about male violence against women or the police's handling of protests and vigils, he's an eloquent, passionate speaker, never short of a quotable quote. I caught up with Nazir this week to mark the paperback launch of his autobiography, The Prosecutor, in a wide-ranging conversation, we talked first about the childhood experiences in Birmingham, which encouraged him to follow a career in the justice system. I was surrounded by racism. I was surrounded by... Um, we didn't have neighbours back then. We had witnesses. There was just so much crime on the streets, and it didn't feel very safe. As strange as it may sound, you know, I was born in 62, but for the first eight years, the only white person I knew was my teacher. Everybody else in my neighbourhood was a relative or somebody of a similar background, similar heritage. And so it was about 1970, or just before 1970, where my father decided it would be a good idea for him to take all of us to Pakistan to show us this country that we'd come from. And those of us probably remember in the 70s, you, you could travel anywhere. There weren't the boundaries and restrictions there were now. So we got in the back of a very large Ford Transit. My mother, my father, my brothers, 
my sister and uh, my seven-year-old cousin, Yasmin, who was actually born of a mixed-race relationship. So she was like my best mate, you know. And we literally, we drove across Europe, across Asia, through Iran, to Afghanistan, all the stuff you couldn't do now without being blown out of the water. Arrived in Pakistan, and, and, and I was now in village life. And it was quite an extraordinary experience for me to to see where my family grew up and uh, where my, you know, my heritage was. But at, on the top of the hill of this village, if you people remember 1970, on top of the hill were the, there were a group of hippies that had moved into a house from all over Europe. Strange as it may sound, the only white people, the first white people I ever spoke to were back in northern Pakistan, <laughs> even though I'd been living in England. Uh, and uh, I was going up the hill and feeding these hippies because they didn't have any money or anything of that nature. And that's where I listened to Jim Morrison. I remember uh, listening to some tunes with them and stuff. Of course, they were stoned out of their heads. You know? But it was a great six months where I really began to appreciate how difficult my family's lives were. But that was what they considered to be home. And all the while, actually, back in my mind, or back in my father's mind, there was a view, at some point, the British government are going to kick us all out. So we need to make sure that our house over there is ready for us. I never thought that way, but that's the way he clearly, he clearly thought. So but then we drove all the way back across Europe. It takes about a month. And my seven-year-old cousin, Yasmin, got ill around about Germany. And she was suffering from diarrhea and dehydration. Now, these days, a few pills and you're okay. But back then, you couldn't Google anything. And because of language difficulties and also because my father was desperate to get all of our family back to England, we just kept going. And we arrived in um, Ostend to get the ferry. And just before we arrived in Ostend, my mother um, handed Yasmin to me. I didn't appreciate this, but Yasmin had just passed away. So I'm now traveling on a ferry. And mum said to me, look, look after her. She's sleeping. So I'm, I'm holding my seven-year-old cousin. It was a four-hour ferry journey, looking down at her, stroking her hair, you know, thinking she was sleeping and then realizing she wasn't sleeping at all. And we arrived back in Dover. And first thing, obviously, my father did was report the death and all sorts of things happened then. And we ended up back in Birmingham, where we eventually buried her. What struck me and remains with me, actually, 50 years later, was that I felt I couldn't do anything for her. If you read the book, you know, with the time we spent in Pakistan, you know, she was literally my other half. We were running around and going to all sorts of places and doing all sorts of things together because she was somebody I, you know, I engaged with and I knew and um, I clearly loved. I mean, I did love her, even eight years old. And then she was just taken from me or taken from us all. And I had no power to do with something about it. And when I was writing the book, that's when I began reflecting upon why it is that I've really got my um, determination to protect women and girls and a determination to protect the most vulnerable in our society. And I have no doubt that seeing that girl in my arms for four hours on a ferry and, not, and knowing that I couldn't have done anything. And, but now, these days, a few pills would have saved her. really has stuck, stuck with me. And um, we buried her in Birmingham. Now and again, I'd visit her grave in the years after. But the realisation that I don't want anybody else to have die on my watch stuck with me and always has. And, and when I moved into justice and moved into prosecuting, there's no doubt in my mind her image remains with me and the, the feeling that, you know, I'm not going to allow a lack of power to stop me helping if I can. And you were also the victim of a racist attack on the streets of Birmingham, which again brought this desire to seek justice into sharp focus. 
Yeah. Well, I start my book on this. I mean, I was 13 or thereabouts, and I was coming home from school, and, and suddenly I hear a, you know, lots of derogatory comments made in my direction as three young men. You know, they were four or five years older than I was. They were white men chased after me. And I just, you know, one of the things I remember about the 60s and 70s is running so much. You know, I used to run all the time, running for your life, literally. And I'm, I'm running down Holmore Road in a small heave and trying to get home as fast as possible. And these men are after me or these young men are after me. And unfortunately, they catch up with me. And I'm, literally, I'm on the floor with my head in my hands trying to avoid the blows to my head. It's only because a, a minicab driver pulls up, but they ran away and uh, I managed to get home and I, I walk in and my father sees my bruised and bloodied face and he doesn't even blink. And I said to him, I want justice, I want justice. And he goes, there, there, you know, literally like, what do you know? Do you know what they look like? Do you know who they are? No, I don't know. So just leave that now. And he starts tending my, tending my wounds and stuff. And made me realize actually that yes, we, there should be justice for people like that. You know, this was day-to-day behavior and day-to-day experience of victims. And, you know, I suffered, but there were others suffering more than I was. And they shouldn't have had to go home to their families and and their families think, well, the police won't be interested in you. What's the point of even bothering making a report? And that clearly is something that stayed with me. I know for a fact that I don't want other people to have to experience what I did. And did you experience any racism in the legal profession as you made your way in it? 100%. I was pretty much the only, I'm trying to think now, certainly the only Asian face at law school. I was one of a handful at university. When I qualified and became a a lawyer, you know, now if you go into most courtrooms in the country, you'll see loads of lawyers from black and minority backgrounds, Asian backgrounds. But, you know, I was it. You know, I was the only person that you'd end up seeing. And uh, I felt very much as if I had to work doubly hard, Adrian, Again, it's something to do with my heritage. My father never took a day off. And I think I took, I got that from him. I don't recommend it to anybody, by the way. But literally, I'd be working seven days a week just to stand still. I realized that I wasn't, you know, they, they told me, for example, oh, you've got, got to go down to the pub on a Friday night because that's when you hear about the good opportunities that might be coming your way and the nice cases that might be. And I said, I don't want to go down the pub on a Friday night, you know. And literally, I was being excluded without knowing I was being excluded. Uh, and so my response to that was, simply to say, I'm going to be my own person. I'm not going to be something they want me to be. And additionally, I literally will have to work extraordinarily hard just to stand still. You made your name as the Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England, but originally you were a defence lawyer. Yeah, in Birmingham, absolutely. When I first qualified, I worked for a firm called Glaziers, which are still based in uh, central Birmingham. And they were brilliant to me. I mean, they gave me an enormous training. I did some criminal work with them, criminal defence work with them. And, you know, I pay enormous credit to criminal defence lawyers. We all need them. At some point, we may need them. So, you know, they do a really tough job. When people keep asking people like that, they're saying, well, how could you possibly defend somebody? They're there to represent you, not defend you. But at the same time, that did prove to be the breaking point for you, didn't it? 100%. I remember dealing with a, a rape case. This is before video disclosure, which now happens. So you had a statement of a rape victim, and I, I had the suspect in the room with me, and I'm literally reading the statement and asking for his comments on what the victim has said. And I could see from his the look on his face that he was literally getting off on it. You know, he was enjoying 
listening to what this victim had said about him. Of course, he's innocent or proven guilty, but I was 100% certain he was guilty. And also, I felt like I was, I was literally helping him continue his abuse of that woman. And so that was enough for me. I couldn't do that anymore. I'd rather do what I'm doing, what I'd done, which is to bring people like that to justice rather than try and find some kind of loophole. See, people don't understand prosecution. They don't really. Prosecution for me is building this wall of evidence to make it strong and robust. And if you can't build it, well, then drop the case. But if you can, you build the strongest wall you can. Well, a defense lawyer's job, as I saw it, was that they find trying to find holes in the wall and trying to bring it down. And I'd rather do the building of the wall and let somebody else try to find the holes. You referred a little earlier to courtrooms and talked about people from black and minority backgrounds, black and Asian people. This week, it's emerged that the government's Disparities Commission is going to recommend the dropping of the word BAME, black and minority ethnic. What do you make of that? Do you know, I was never in the room when they came up with that term in the first place. I mean, this government currently seems to be obsessed with symbols and labels. You know, we've had the discussions about flags and statues rather than discussing what it means to be British. We're now having a discussion around a label for people from minorities rather than the institutional racism and structural racism they face. So it's a bit of a dead cat. It's a bit of a distraction. People from minorities were never asked whether they were BAME or not. You know, we were told, you are BAME. And then, of course, when somebody asks you, what, that, what does that mean? You say, hang on, that means non-white. So all that BAME does is to identify you by what you're not rather than what you are. So I did my census a couple of weeks ago, and I put down British Pakistani, and people did British Indian or whatever it may be. That gives you a sense of what you are rather than what you're not. So I, I've never bought into this BAME concept. I think the, BAME, the idea of BAME or having a, some kind of global figure like that works for data collection. Uh, to, you, you, you know, to know what's happening on, on say, COVID or on, uh, on arrests or whatever it may be. But in real life, we don't go around saying, hi, BAME. It, it doesn't work that way. This nine-month report, if that's the greatest finding of this report, we've wasted a lot of public money, haven't we? We really ought to be thinking about structural racism, institutional racism. Why today, for example, if you're a black person or a BAME person, uh, you're nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. Uh, you know, you're more likely to be arrested, more likely to be charged, more likely to be convicted, all on the same evidence as a white person. You're more likely to go to prison for longer. So all of those things are structural. If you're a woman, a black woman, you are five times more likely to lose your baby in, in, in childbirth. Uh, we know from COVID, it uh, has a disproportionate impact on people from minority communities. Those are the real issues that we ought to be addressing rather than what somebody else wants to call me. Yeah. At the same time, though, there is, understandably, given the history of the West, a keenness for people to claim their identity, isn't there? And so we've seen, for example, the phrase Black Lives Matter enter into the public lexicon. We've seen Black Lives Matter ahead of football matches and footballers taking the knee. So people do attach an importance to identity, don't they? Black is an identity, yeah, absolutely. Um, but BAME isn't an identity in the same way. So at 100%, that, that whole idea of Black Lives Matter is to get people to see where disproportionate impact happens. Do you know there's not one chief constable 
who is black or minor, Asian or minority in this country of the 42? Do you know of the chief executives of local authorities, 97.5% are white? You know, the word, the ter- strangely, I've been having a conversation with some people the last few days. I've come around to thinking, well, actually, black and Asian people are the global majority and now want to be known as the global majority. And that actually, I think, does work because I can then turn around to chief constables and say, how is it that nobody from the global majority is one of your chief constables? How is it that nobody from a global majority is one of the NHS chief executives or local authority chief executive? I think that actually is quite a telling phrase. And again, it identifies you as what you are rather than what you're not. Yeah, I think you noted that line of duty has significantly greater black and Asian representation than the real police. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary if you look at it. I mean, you, the central, central police is about a third BAME. Even AC-12, which is the, uh, the anti-corruption unit, about a third BAME. And then you look across the P- Police and Crime Commissioner, a good friend of mine, Ace Bati, who played me in Three Girls. He's the Police and Crime Commissioner, again BAME. Unfortunately, the only person that's been arrested so far is BAME as well, but that's a different story. But the point is, it really is very diverse. But then you look across the policing estate across this country, justice full stop, just judges, only one point something percent from judges as well. So every institution has some real work to do to make us more diverse than we are. I understand the argument to kind of disaggregate the meaning of this word BAME, but for many years there was a campaign to unite all minority groups or all minority groups of colour under the phrase blacks. People were told that they were politically black, as it were, in that they were all oppressed. Now we're told that black is a phrase that can only be used for African or Caribbean people. Where do you stand on that debate? Again, ask, ask the people what they think. You know, it's not about what I think. I talk to a lot of Asian people, people from Indian and Pakistani backgrounds, and they, they'd rather say that they're Asian or Indian or Pakistani. They would rather not say they were black. Again, some people who are from Chinese backgrounds, they would rather see themselves as being Chinese, black, British Chinese, rather than being black. But they're lumped in together, aren't they, under this BAME thing? I'm thinking of the word black, though, and the political use of the word black was, to a considerable extent, engineered by black and Asian political activists to kind of build a, a unity between them? It was something given to them as well. I mean, I, I remember in the 70s, it was very much one or the other. And so in steps along the way, people were content to see themselves as black if they weren't white. But in any event, it doesn't matter what I think. You know, I remember uh, my ex-mother-in-law came up to me once and said to me, Nazir, you've got very nice olive skin. And I, I'd only ever seen green olives. And so I thought, what, am I green or something? I hadn't realised that. I hadn't realised that was her saying that I'm black, you know? She was an Irish Catholic. The point is, black and white, we're much more complex now as, as a humanity. Uh, we need to reflect the differences that exist now. And the reality is we're much more complex as a race and we should be better at being able to identify. But the answer to how you identify must be left to the people rather than given to them by the state. You mentioned Black Lives Matter. How significant a moment do you think for the UK and the world the death of George Floyd was? Oh, massively significant. It happened, as you know, in the beginning of the COVID epidemic. And what we saw was, allegedly, because there is, as you know, a trial taking place, what we saw was a man who was 
simply knelt on, on his neck for now we know nine minutes, 29 seconds by a police officer because that's what he does. You know, that's the, the view taken by so many people was it was in broad daylight. It was in the middle of not in rural you know, part of America. It was in, in the middle of a metropolitan district. And yet the police felt that they could do what they do. And it, what it did was it, put a, it shone a light on the extent to which uh, people from minorities, including uh, black people in America, feel about the police. You know, it shouldn't be. We're very much more fortunate, I think, in the UK. We don't have militarized police in the way that the Americans do, although they are much more, more diverse than we are. Uh, so, you know, pluses and minuses. But you had a situation where it was all about power, Adrian. The state had power. It wasn't on its own. The context was that black men in particular, I mean, America has more black men in prison than you can imagine. I mean, their prisons are full of them. Uh, and it's to do with inequality. It's to do with uh, poverty. It's to do with all sorts of issues. But at the end of the day, uh, power was being used and in, in daylight uh, to sustain. Of course, America and black America has the slave trade to think about, too. That somehow maybe they hadn't moved on as much as they think they had done since the civil rights movement in the 60s. And then we, br- we brought that over here because we began to think we have similar issues. We have similar, uh, some, some of the things I mentioned earlier on, where disproportionately people from black and ethnic minorities or Asian minorities are massively impacted by racism, institutional or structural. And we stopped talking about it. I remember so many times people will say to me, Nazir, you're the uh, chief prosecutor. You managed to get to that level. Surely that means there's no racism. And they didn't realize how many battles I had to fight, not only to get there, to stay there. And even when I was there, I was getting hate mail. I organized a sports conference about football. I was talking about how the behavior of players on the pitch impacts on spectators, impacts on wider society. I, I did that in all of the, the national media. And, and I got so much hate mail. I remember one in particular, Adrian, dear Mr. Afsal, uh, we English uh, we English invented football. Please go back to Wogland. You know, I looked at my globe and I couldn't find Wogland anywhere. <laughs> but I found his name and address on a letter and he got a visit from the police. But, you know, they... They, they didn't care. They didn't care that I was what I was. They still felt a sense of privilege that they were white and I wasn't, and that I was almost being gifted this on condition. I'm, I'm afraid to say a lot of people in positions of responsibility who managed to succeed, and there are many of them, will still feel that way as well, that's, that somehow, someday, somebody will abuse them. Look at the abuse you get online when you say something. Nazir Afzal and his book, The Prosecutor, is out now in paperback. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times, which pays for this podcast and our website, which is where you'll also find details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.